On holiday dinner tables across the world, chances are there'll be platters of perfect, glistening garnet rounds, the ridges from the can still visible along their perfect, glistening garnet sides. This is jellied cranberry sauce. It's a North American Christmas tradition. Like so many traditions, its existence is controversial. It's a feat of engineering. It's a culinary wonder. It's an abomination, some say, slandering the cranberry's good name. Welcome to Seasons Eatings. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and this is a bonus episode for the Burr months of the year I like to call a Seasons Eatings side dish. Each month leading up to December, I'm going to explore the origin and history of some of our favorite Christmas side dishes. Dishes that don't get the spotlight on the holiday table, but carrying a supporting role. This month, I'm focusing on that tart red berry that makes up the wonderful jiggly condiment, cranberry sauce. But first, please take a moment and subscribe so you can help other Christmas lovers find the show. I would love if you could leave me a review on Stitcher, Google, or Apple Podcasts. And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Seasons Eatings Podcast. And finally, I would love to hear from you for suggestions for future episodes, comments, questions, or even just a chat. You can reach me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. According to Ocean Spray, the largest producer of cranberry sauce, Americans consume over 5 million gallons of jellied cranberry sauce each year. That's the official name for the traditional holiday side dish we know and love that holds the shape of the can it comes in every holiday season. That's 4 million pounds of cranberries, 200 berries in each can, that reach a gel-like consistency from pectin, a natural setting agent found in the food. And if you're part of the 26% of Americans who make homemade sauce during the holidays, consider that only about 5% of America's total cranberry crop is sold as fresh fruit. Also consider, 100 years ago, cranberries were only available fresh for a mere two months of the year. Usually harvested around mid-September until mid-November in North America, making them the perfect holiday side. Tens of thousands of years ago, receding glaciers carved out cavities in the land that evolved into cranberry bogs. Newly formed kettle ponds filled with sand, clay, and debris formed the perfect environment for vines that spread across the South Shore, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket. Massachusetts was born with cranberry bogs. For 200 years, it has been where tradition has met innovation. Wampanoag people across southern Massachusetts have enjoyed the annual harvest of sumaneash, or wild cranberries, for 12,000 years. Some ate berries fresh, while others dried them to make nasempe, or pemmican, a mix of berries, dried meat, and animal fat which could last for months. It's the original energy bar. Medicine men even used cranberries in traditional healing rituals to fight fever, swelling, and even seasickness. Europeans exploring and settling New England in the 16th and 17th centuries were not surprised to see Sassumineash. Many were familiar with European cranberry varieties which grew in the boggy regions of southern England and in the low-lying Netherlands. The English had many names for the fruit, but 
Craneberries was the most common because many thought the flower resembled the head of a sandhill crane. Revolutionary War veteran Henry Hall is often credited with planting the first known commercial cranberry bed in Dennis, Massachusetts in 1816. But some historians say Sir Joseph Banks, one of the most important figures of his time in British science, was harvesting cranberries in Britain a decade earlier from seeds that were sent over from the States. Banks just never marketed them. By the mid-19th century, what we know as the modern cranberry industry was in full swing and the competition among bog growers was fierce. Hall noticed that the wild cranberries in his bogs grew better when sand blew over them. Captain Hall began transplanting cranberry vines and spreading sand on them. And when others heard of Hall's technique, it was quickly copied. Continuing through the 19th century, the number of growers increased steadily. The business model worked on a small scale at first. Families and members of the community harvested wild cranberries and then sold them locally or to a middleman before retail. As the market expanded to larger cities like Boston, Providence, and New York, growers relied on cheap labor from migrant workers. Farmers competed to unload their surpluses fast. What was once a small local venture became a boom or bust business. While initially criticized for tinkering with vines, the idea of growing and selling cranberries commercially soon caught on, and local landowners eagerly converted their swamps, wetlands, peat swamps, and wet meadows into cranberry bogs. By 1885, Plymouth County boasted over 1,300 acres under cultivation. By 1900, the numbers of acres tripled, making Cape Cod a household name. Cranberry fever struck and the industry boomed. As late as 1927, the cranberry harvest remained so vital to local and state economies that Massachusetts children could be excused from school to work the bogs during harvest season. Expansion fueled innovation. Growing cranberries demanded long hours of backbreaking work. Farmers eagerly sought new tools to build better bogs and harvest cranberries more efficiently. In the 1880s, wooden cranberry scoops started to replace traditional hand-picking. Sorters and screening equipment soon followed. Expansion also meant new workers on the bogs. Although many growers still relied on traditional family and community support during the harvest, demands for higher wages provided opportunities for newly arrived immigrants from Finland and the Cape Verdean Islands seeking better economic opportunities and the chance at an improved life. In 1912, one savvy businessman devised a way to change the cranberry industry forever. Marcus L. Uran was a lawyer with big plans. At the turn of the 20th century, he left his legal career to buy a cranberry bog. I felt I could do something for New England. You know, everything in life is what you do for others, Uran said in an interview published in the Spokane Daily Chronicle in 1959, decades after his inspired career change. His altruistic motives aside, Uran was a savvy businessman who knew how to work a market. After he set up cooking facilities as a packing house in Hanson, Massachusetts, he began to consider ways to extend the short selling season of the berries. Canning them in particular he knew would make the berry a year-round product. Cranberries are picked during a six-week period, Robert Cox, co-author of Massachusetts Cranberry Culture, a history from bog to table, says. Before canning technology, the product had to be consumed immediately, and the rest of the year there was almost no market. 
Duran's canned cranberry sauce and juice are revolutionary innovations because they produced a product with a shelf life for months and months instead of just days. What kept the cranberry market from really exploding was a combination of geography and economics. The berries require a very particular environment for a successful crop and are localized to areas like Massachusetts and Wisconsin. Cranberries are picky when it comes to growing conditions. Because they're traditionally grown in natural wetlands, they need a lot of water. During the long, cold winter months, they also require a period of dormancy which rules out any southern region in the U.S. as an option for cranberry farming. Uran's idea to can and juice cranberries in 1912 created a market that cranberry growers had never seen before, but his business sense went even further. He had the savvy, the finances, the connections, and an innovative spirit to make change happen. He wasn't the only one to cook cranberry sauce. He wasn't the only one to develop new products, but he was the first to come up with the idea, says Cox. His innovative ideas were helped by a change in how cranberries were harvested. In the 1930s, harvesting techniques transitioned from dry to wet. Cranberries grow on vines that can be harvested either by picking them individually by hand, the dry method, or by flooding the bog at time of harvest, the wet method, like what we see in many cranberry commercials. Today, about 90% of cranberries are picked using the wet harvesting technique. Cranberries are a hardy plant. They grow in acidic, sandy soil, and a lot of people, when they see the commercial, think cranberries grow in water. The water helps to separate the berry from the vine, and small air pockets in the berry allow them to float to the surface. Rather than taking a week, you could do it in an afternoon. Instead of a team of 20 or 30, bogs now have a team of 4 or 5. After the wet harvesting option was introduced in the mid to late 1900s, growers looked to new methods of using their crop, including canning, freezing, drying, and juicing the berries. Uran also helped develop a number of novel cranberry products, like the cranberry juice cocktail in 1933, and six years later he came up with a syrup for mixed drinks. The famous, or infamous, cranberry sauce log we know today became available nationwide in 1941. Cranberry can take on many forms. Sauce, relish, jellied mold. It's not important how the cranberry gets to the table during the holidays, just that it gets there. Like potatoes, everyone seems to have their favorite iteration. Some prefer a homemade sauce. Others insist that the holidays cannot begin unless their sauce has can lines. All sauces have the same ingredients, but the consistency can vary greatly. So what determines the shape and viscosity, and what separates a viscous sauce from a sliceable mold? It's the amount of pectin in the sauce. Okay, here's where the science geek in me comes out. I could go into the science around polymers and how they combine together in chains to help hold the liquid, or in this case, the cranberry sauce together, but that would make a very long and slightly academic podcast. So, I'll just give you the highlights. Pectin is a natural and commercially produced essential ingredient in preserves like jellies and jams. Without pectin, jellies and jams won't gel. Pectin is a type of starch that occurs naturally in the cell walls of fruits and vegetables and gives them their structure. Pectin is often purchased in powdered form and used to promote the gelling of jellies and jams made from fruit with low pectin levels but that's unnecessary when working with firmer fruits with higher levels of pectin. When making jams and jellies, pectin works with acid and sugar to form stable gels. 
In the addition of breaking down cell walls, acid also works with the pectin to form insoluble fibers. Sugar stabilizes them by binding up some of the water, keeping your gel from losing water through weeping. Cranberries, along with apples and citrus peels, naturally contain a lot of pectin. When heated, the cell walls of the fruit break down and the cranberries pop open. Their pectin is released and the long polymer chains begin to interact and tangle, stabilizing the sauce by trapping dissolved sugars and juices. The longer the cranberries are heated, the more pectin is extracted and the firmer the sauce becomes. Most homemade cranberry sauces are fairly loose, so I'm assuming that the canned cranberry sauce variety has a little extra pectin added to keep up its firmness. If you lay out all the cans of sauce consumed in a year from end to end, it would stretch 3,385 miles, almost 5,500 kilometers, or the length of 67,500 football fields. So, to those of you ready to crack open your can of jellied cranberry sauce this fall, you can thank the man who started it all, Marcus Uran. Thank you for joining me on this bonus edition of Seasons Eatings. You can find Seasons Eatings on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you can, please subscribe so I can spread the Christmas joy with others. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. And I'm also on Facebook. Just search facebook.com forward slash Seasons Eatings Podcast. And finally, I would like to thank the people over at MyMerryChristmas.com. I've been a member of My Merry Christmas for three or four years now, and they're always the best place to find everything about Christmas. All music used in Seasons Eatings is either royalty-free or used under the Creative Commons license. <laughs>